Today's sermon comes from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have have had mercy... Uh, on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In 1944, during World War II, Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy experienced unimaginable suffering at the hands of German guards in a German concentration camp. And just to list what she and her sister received and how they were treated, they endured hunger, nakedness, being mocked and humiliated, beatings, illness and denial of proper medical care, backbreaking labor, solitary confinement, being packed with 80 women in a boxcar for three days, sleeping on the cold, wet ground and later in lice and flea-infested beds, roll call pre-dawn for hours at a time, interrogations and witnessing the torture of other prisoners. Now, most of us have not been mistreated to the degree that Corey Ten Boom and her sister were mistreated. But every one of us has been wronged, has been offended, has been hurt by someone, and maybe even repeatedly to the point that you've asked the question, how in the world am I supposed to continue to forgive this person? Our kids that did Backyard Bible Clubs this week, they studied the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And they learned how Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, mistreated horribly, sold into slavery. And the question they had to contemplate was, how in the world could Joseph, after being so mistreated by his brothers, actually forgive them? 
This is the dilemma that Peter finds himself in in Matthew 18. He asked Jesus in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now let me paraphrase what Peter's saying there. Jesus, at some point, isn't enough enough? I mean, isn't there some threshold at which I've been sinned against that I no longer forgive? Isn't enough enough? Jesus' answer in verse 22 is shocking. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus takes two perfect numbers, seven and 10, multiplies them together, and then multiplies that again by the perfect number seven. In other words, completeness times completeness times completeness. He's conveying the idea of infinity. And what he's saying is that the spirit of forgiveness knows no limits. It's a state of the heart. It's not a matter of calculation. Jesus says that we are to continue to forgive and to never stop. Now, if you're alive and you have a pulse, you should be asking, how in the world can I do that? In fact, some of you right now are in the midst of some sort of relationship where you have been wronged and hurt, and you're going, how can I forgive this person? How can you continue to forgive someone who sins against you? The power to forgive rests on understanding three truths. The first is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus tells this story of a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. Now, these servants were probably governors who would collect the royal tax in their region, their province, and they would be responsible for taking these large sums of money and giving it to the king at the proper time. We learn in verse 24 that one of these governors owed the king 10,000 talents, but he had nothing to pay. Now, what is 10,000 talents? It's a lot, let me explain. One talent was approximately 6,000 denarii, one denarii was a day's wage. So at the rate of six denarii a week, that would be six working days a week, okay, it would take a laborer a thousand weeks, just over 19 years to earn one talent. Which means that a, a laborer over a lifetime couldn't even come close to earning 10 talents if he saved at all. This servant was in debt not 10 talents, but 10,000 talents. In today's dollars, it's probably about $10 million. The point is, it was a debt that he couldn't pay. He couldn't pay it. How did he come to owe this much? We don't know. Was he just not collecting the taxes? Did he collect them and spend it on himself? We don't know. All we know is he has a debt that there was absolutely no way he could pay off. So how's the king respond? Initially, verse 25, and since he could not pay, 
His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment to be made. Now, selling someone into slavery who couldn't pay a debt in the first century if the debt was large enough was not unusual. They would sell someone and their family into slavery and take the proceeds to pay off the debt. Problem here is that selling this family into slavery didn't even touch the amount of this debt. So how does the servant respond? Verse 26, servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now note here, the servant doesn't deny the debt, doesn't deny he owes him. He doesn't make an excuse or try to explain how he got in this terrible predicament. He doesn't say, I'll give you a down payment. He, sa- he doesn't have anything. He just says, I'll pay you back over time. And then how does the king respond to this plea? This is what is astonishing. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity. That means sheer compassion. He gave this servant more than he had ever hoped or dreamed for. He canceled his debt and he released him from punishment. That word pity, the same word is used in Matthew 9, 36, describing Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Same word there is pity. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The depth of God's mercy cannot be measured. It is his defining attribute. God has a merciful and compassionate heart. There's a phrase in the Old Testament that gets repeated over and over describing King David. David is called a man after God's own heart. Now, that's always been a very perplexing description of King David because David had a number of not-so-great moments in his life. In deliberate disobedience to God, he took a census of his people out of pride. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband killed to cover it up. David had many not so great moments. And you say, then how is he a man after God's own heart? Well, the answer is in 1 Samuel 24. And in 1 Samuel 24, we see this interaction between David and Saul. Now, in chapter 16, David had been anointed king, but he hadn't been installed yet. So Saul was still the king. And Saul became jealous of David. He began to mistreat him. He began to hunt him down to try to kill him. And in 1 Samuel 24, we learn that Saul walked into a cave to relieve himself. And David and all of his men were in this cave. Saul didn't know it. So here was David's opportunity to this man who had mistreated him, who had offended him, wronged him, was seeking to kill him. Here was his chance to get rid of him to administer justice. And all the people with David were saying, David, here it is. He's hurt you. He's offended you. He's wronged you this bad. Pay him back right here. 
And David wouldn't do it. He spared Saul's life. A couple chapters later, he spared Saul's life again when he had an opportunity to pay him back for all the wrong that Saul had done to him. What we see in David's life is that over and over, he overlooks the sin of others. He forgives the sin of others. He extends mercy to those who had sinned against him. That's why he's a man after God's own heart, because God's heart is a heart of mercy and a heart of compassion. That's who God is. It's astonishing. Thomas Terrence was a former hate-filled Ku Klux Klan member who experienced the mercy of God. He was raised and grew up in the 1960s in Mobile, Alabama, when segregation was alive. And Terrence began reading some white supremacist and anti-Semitic and anti-communist literature that was circulating through his high school. And then he began to talk to the people who were propagating and advocating these ideas. And soon after, he found himself involved with Mississippi's dreaded white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. It was the most violent, right-wing terrorist organization in the United States at the time. One summer night, he and his accomplice set out to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman. Police knew it was coming, they had staked it out, and so what enraged was gunfire, and, and his accomplice, his partner, was killed, and yet he was so close to four blasts of a shotgun that he was critically wounded, so wounded that the doctor said he wouldn't live for 45 more minutes. And yet, Terence survived. God, for some reason, spared his life to the shock of the doctors and the dismay of the police because he deserved to die. And yet he didn't. He was sentenced about six months later, a couple days later, but ended up sentenced 30 years in the Mississippi, Mississippi State Penitentiary. After six months in prison, he escaped with some inmates. Several days after he escaped, they were ambushed by police, gunfire, gun battle again, and the inmate that he escaped with was killed, shot and killed. If that inmate had not taken Terrence out of the, the watch point 30 minutes early, Terrence would have been the one that died. Once again, God spared his life and extended mercy to a man who deserved to die. He was put in a six by nine foot prison cell in maximum security. And so he didn't go crazy. He started reading all the time. And he started reading a New Testament. He started reading the Gospels. And God opened his eyes to his sin, to his hatred, to the horror of his sin, to his need for forgiveness, and to Christ, the one who had given his life to pay the debt of his sin. Terence responded by trusting Christ. After serving eight years in prison, there was an extraordinary turn of events that gave him a parole grant at a university. He went on to go into campus ministry. 
in pastoral ministry in a racially mixed church. And then he spent most of his career teaching and writing for the C.S. Lewis Institute. This is what Thomas Terence said in reflecting on his life. As I look back over the nearly 50 years since God saved me, I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved. That's mercy. But because he is full of grace and mercy, he gave me exactly what I needed. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How can you forgive someone who continues to sin against you? First, by understanding the mercy of God, the astonishing mercy of God. But second, by understanding the justice of man, the behavior of this servant after his debt was forgiven stands in such sharp contrast to how the king had treated this man. It's such a sharp contrast. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, just to put this in perspective, a 100 denarii was one six hundred thousandth of the canceled debt of this servant. In other words, what this servant owed him, 100 denarii, was nothing, nothing compared to what he had been forgiven. It was minor. And yet, how does the servant respond? Well, so the servant pleads for mercy, just like this master had pleaded for mercy to the king. And yet, this master, who had had his sin forgiven, this massive debt canceled, refused to extend mercy, refused to forgive the debt, had this servant thrown in prison to work forced labor. The reason that he didn't sell this servant and his family into slavery is because the debt wasn't big enough. He was legally allowed, because of the smallness of the debt, to put him in prison and have him use forced labor to work it off, and that's what he did. He refused to extend mercy. He administered justice. This servant got what he deserved. He had a debt he couldn't pay. You know, it's interesting, if you just read this section of the parable by itself, minus the choking, this servant got what he deserved. He had a debt, he couldn't pay it, so he went to prison, went to jail. But when you put it in the shadow of this first part of the parable, of the massive debt that was canceled for this master, that's when it becomes shocking. In the first part of the parable, the king forgives this debt and mercy triumphs over justice. In the second part of this parable, this master refuses to forgive the debt and justice triumphs over mercy. 
This master who had been forgiven much administered justice without mercy. In your life, what usually triumphs? Justice or mercy? What usually triumphs in your life? I I think I'll answer it for you because I'll answer it for me. Justice usually triumphs. Now, justice just means rightness. It just means rightness. So let me rephrase the question that might make it a little more accessible. In your life, what usually triumphs? Forgiving others or being right? When someone wrongs you or someone offends you, what are you most eager to do? Forgive them or explain to them how they're wrong, why they're wrong, convince them that they understand why they're wrong. Now, I am not saying that you don't confront someone who has sinned against you. That's exactly what prompts this dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Jesus had just said, that if someone sins against you, go show them their fault. The question is, what's the motivation for you confronting someone who sinned against you? Is it self-justification? That I'm confronting them so they know that I'm right and they're wrong and that they've offended me. If you confront someone who has sinned against you without forgiving them from your heart, then you will confront them in a way that hurts them back and makes them pay. If justice triumphs over mercy, then you will confront in a way that makes that person pay for what they've done to you. But if mercy triumphs over justice, then you will confront in a way that leads them to Christ. You'll confront in a way that is about their restoration, ultimately. You will confront them in a way that is loving. The former Chief editor of Christianity Today magazine, David Neff, was at a loving God and loving neighbor dialogue between two groups of people. It was a group of Christians and it was a group of Muslims. And as he sat there and he listened to the dialogue, he was struck by the stark difference between the way the two groups viewed love and mercy. The Christian participants would share how Jesus taught them that their love is indiscriminate. But the Muslim participants talked about the limits of their religion as it pertained to the mercy of God. And so they said that if if an orphan or a widow or others in need through no fault of their own came to them, then they would extend mercy. They deserved mercy. But if there was, no, there was no obligation to extend mercy to the person whose drunkenness or gambling or unwise behavior had put them in that predicament, then they didn't have to extend mercy. And David Neff, just watching this and hearing this unfold, 
summarized it beautifully. He said the tension was not between a generous God and a stingy God, but between mercy that was defined and conditioned by justice and justice that was conditioned and defined by mercy. Jesus taught that justice is to be conditioned and defined by mercy. But we oftentimes don't live that way. Let me give you an example. We are much quicker to forgive someone if they wrong us or offend us unintentionally, if they don't mean to. We're a lot quicker to extend forgiveness. We're much slower to forgive someone who wrongs us or offends us on purpose and with great intention. That's the human condition. And that's why it's hard for us to continually forgive someone who hurts us, wrongs us, offends us. So how can you continue to forgive someone who sins against you? First, by understanding the mercy of God the astonishing mercy of God. Second, understanding the justice of man, the the justice bent in your heart that makes you run to justice and not to mercy. Now, this brings us to the third act of this parable, right? There's three acts in this parable. In act one, the king forgives his servant's debt. Mercy triumphs over justice. In act two, this forgiven master refuses to extend mercy to his servant. Justice triumphs over mercy. And now we get to act three. When this master refused to forgive his servant, the other servants were distressed by this. And so they went and told the king. And this is what the king said in verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So in act one of this parable, the king extends forgiveness and cancels the debt. In act three of this parable, the king administers justice and makes the servant pay his debt. Now understand, when Jesus is telling a parable, he is telling an earthly story to explain a heavenly reality. That's how he starts this parable out in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The king in this parable is God. The king in this parable represents God. So this begs a a huge question. Is God the God of act one of this parable that extends mercy and forgives the debt? Or is God the God of act three of this parable who pours out his anger and wrath on the servant? Say, which is it? And the answer is it's both. 
God is a God of love. But God is also a God of justice. And many people struggle with this. How can God be a God of love and a God of justice at the same time? How can God be filled with love, but then also filled with this anger and this wrath? If God is love, then he should forgive and accept everyone. There should be no anger. But love and wrath, or love and anger, are not incompatible. And your own experience would give evidence to this. Loving people are oftentimes filled with anger, not despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone or something ruining them, you're filled with anger because you don't want to see this person you love be destroyed or be ruined. N.T. Wright explains it this way. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving, nor good, nor wise. Now, recognizing that sin has infected every person on the face of this earth, then how does God root sin out of his people without destroying his people? In other words, if love and wrath or justice and mercy are not incompatible, where do they intersect? Where do they come together? It's at the cross. It's at the cross that God's the demands of God's justice and the demands of God's love intersect and meet. The sin of God's people was put on Jesus and God poured his wrath and anger out on Jesus instead of you. And so as he satisfied the demands of his justice on his own son, he satisfied the demands of his love on you by his son being a substitute for you. That's how love and wrath come together at the cross of Jesus Christ. In act one and act three of this parable, justice was served. In act one of this parable, the debt was paid. The debt was paid by the king. In act three of this parable, the debt was paid but the debt was paid by the servant. You have a debt of sin that, that never just disappears. It doesn't go into thin air. There is a, a real debt of sin that you have before God, and that debt has to be paid. And it's either paid by Jesus or it's paid by you. 
If you receive Jesus Christ and you receive his forgiveness, then he pays the debt. You are forgiven and set free to spend eternity in the presence of the one who made you. If you reject Jesus and reject his forgiveness, then the debt remains on you and you have to pay the debt for eternity, separated from God. God's mercy is astonishing because out of his love for you, he had his son pay your debt. You can't work your debt off. It's too big. But you can trust Jesus and see your debt transferred to Jesus so that he pays it. Back to my opening question. How can you continue to forgive someone who sins against you? only by the power of Christ. Recognizing that you offend Christ every day. You sin against Christ every day. You wrong Christ every day. And he continues to forgive you. Why does he continue to forgive you? Because if you've placed your trust in him, he has forgiven you. That when he died on the cross, he paid for every last one of your sins, past, present, and future. Already paid, debt canceled. And so he continues to forgive every offense you bring to him, every wrong you do to him. He continues to forgive you. Corey Ten Boom made it out of that German concentration camp alive. After 10 months of unimaginable suffering at the hands of these German guards, she made it out alive. Several years later, she was testifying to her love for Christ, testifying to what Christ had done for her at this meeting in post-war Germany. And after she got done talking people, and people were coming up to her afterwards, this man came up to her and it was the same German guard who had caused her so much pain and anguish. And he walked up to Corey and he said, will you forgive me? And in a flash of recognition, all the memories started coming back. All the pain, all the anguish, all the torment that she had been put under by this German guard. And now she stood, or he stood before her, pleading for mercy. He didn't deserve it. But he received it. She forgave him. And the reason she forgave him is because she understood the astonishing mercy of God. That she herself had been forgiven by Jesus. And because she had been forgiven this massive debt of her own sin, she could turn and forgive this person who had wronged her so much. Mercy triumph. I think I can say this with absolute confidence. That there is some relationship in your life right now in which mercy needs to triumph. 
Who do you need to forgive? In light of God's rich mercy poured out on you, who do you need to forgive? And who do you need to continue to forgive? Let's pray. Father, your mercy is astonishing. We are broken sinners. We are rebels. We continue to sin, to go our own way. And yet while we were running away from you, while we were rebelling against you, while we were sinning against you, you sent Jesus to die for us. And we scratch our heads and say, why? And the answer is because you love us. It's an astonishing love and it's an astonishing mercy. And we are recipients of that. Father, would you forgive us for receiving your forgiveness and then going and administering justice to people without mercy? Would you forgive us for not forgiving those who have hurt us and wronged us? Would you forgive us for making them pay when you didn't make us pay, you made your son Jesus pay? Father, make us a merciful people. And I do pray that, that whatever relationships exist in this room or even in this room and outside this room where mercy needs to triumph, would you by your Holy Spirit bring a softening the hearts, and that we would be eager to go and forgive those who have wronged us. Because, Father, you have forgiven us in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.